Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And on the Heartland Politics in the next coming weeks, it's time to check in on what's going on in our state capitals on both sides of the river. It's very interesting to follow because Iowa is controlled by what's called a trifecta, Republican control of the governor's office and both houses of the state legislature. And in Illinois, it's the exact opposite. Democrats have a blue trifecta of control of the governor's office and state Senate and General Assembly. And it's Springfield that we're going to focus on today. With me to do that is Brendan Moore. He's the uh, Illinois state government and politics reporter for Lee Enterprises. And if you don't follow him, you should. He writes some really good stuff on reporting and and analysis. He's on Twitter. If you're there, uh, that's a way to follow Brendan. It's at Brendan Moore 13. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-M-O-O-R-E-1-3. Brendan, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me on, Robin. You know, there's never a dull moment, it seems like, in Illinois politics, and people want a respite from elections, and, and here we are, uh, just just uh, elected the governor, legislature, Senate, uh, and we're right into another campaign swing. But I wanted to focus a little bit on policy. Uh, there was a major legislative initiative that passed in January uh, d- during a short part of the previous General Assembly session. Very controversial, and I'm sure folks have read about it. It's this bill to uh, ban assault weapons. Um, Can you provide a little bit of background on this? We may get a little technical here for our listeners, but I think it's important to hear what this is and maybe what it isn't. Yeah, absolutely. So you really have to go back to that July 4th shooting in Highland Park where a semi-automatic weapon was was used by by a gunman to kill seven people and wound several dozen. And that really kind of became a catalyst for the movement to enact an assault weapons ban. Uh, for years, uh, Illinois has kind of, uh, gun, gun politics has kind of been a third rail in the state. Even though it is a fairly blue state, uh, you have uh, a lot of uh, downstate members, even Democrats, that uh, were a little bit shy about uh, enacting uh, gun control legislation, especially like this. Um, but as soon as that happened, uh, there seemed to be a lot of momentum on the Democratic side. So basically, uh, House Democrats got into working groups and uh, came up with a package of proposals. Uh, it was introduced in December. They held some hearings. Uh, and then obviously during the lame duck session, which is the period um, right before they uh, they uh, swear in the new General Assembly, so you have lawmakers uh, finishing up their terms uh, in early January, that's when they they really kind of refined it and and made it what it was and, and, and passed it and the governor signed it. So basically uh, what ended up passing was uh, a ban on semi-automatic 
weapons. I believe there was about 150 or so uh, specific uh, types of guns that were that were listed um, that were specifically listed. Uh, then there is a, a, a ban on high capacity magazines. Um, I believe it's uh, 10 rounds for handguns and 15 for, for long guns. Um, and then uh, it also strengthened the uh, so-called red flag law, uh, which basically allows a court to take away uh, somebody's guns if, if, if petitioned by um, you know, family member or, or law enforcement, if they're considered a danger to others, it's, it's strength, it lengthened that from the period from six months to a year that those guns can be taken away. So those are the big things. Um, and, and so, uh, Illinois became the ninth state to have an assault weapon ban on the books. And, um, pretty much immediately after governor Pritzker signed it, uh, the lawsuit started coming in. Uh, from the State Rifle Association, from uh, Tom DeVore, who was the Republican who ran for Attorney General last time around. Um, it's been at the state level and at the federal level. And uh, that's kind of where, where things are, are, are at now. Uh, the, it is the law, uh, but, uh, but obviously, as both sides have said, both during and after the debate over its passage is, we'll see you in court. That, that's, that's where uh, the ultimate judgment is going to be made. I saw on social media almost immediately uh, copies of letters from sheriffs, and I think it was every sheriff in this region, just about, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know how many statewide, maybe 90, I believe, uh, were published where they were going to oppose the law and not enforce it. Um, what is that? I mean, what, what are they saying? That they're not going to um, arrest people that have these weapons? I mean, what, what's their basic statement through the Sheriff's Association on their, uh, how they're not going to carry out the law? Yeah. So, so the, this created a lot of confusion, uh, because if you, if you read the specifics of the law, the enforcement really, the onus of that is on the Illinois state police and, uh, local sheriffs are not necessarily as involved in that, uh, basically, what 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 I was told was that the um, the sheriffs were basically saying that we're not going to go door to door and we're not going to say you know show us you know your weapons. Uh, basically, they're not they're, that they're not going to do that type of thing, and that they believe it's unconstitutional. Um, you know, and and so it it, it is a political statement made by by some of these elected officials. Uh, it, it they are they are elected officials. A lot of them are downstate, are Republican. Um, you know, in areas where people tend to own a lot of guns and are pro Second Amendment. Um, so they were basically trying to reassure their constituents, uh, even if, in a way, it may not even have as much of a practical effect. Because again, the law is in effect, but gun owners have under this legislation. Because a big component of this is that if you own the, these types of weapons, if you own them before the enaction of this law, uh, you are grandfathered in, but you have to register your weapons with the state police, including serial numbers, and you have until the end of this year to do it. Um, so in that sense, there's not even anything to enforce on that end until until next year. Uh, I suppose you could go to a gun shop and you know make sure that uh, uh, these gun shop owners aren't selling guns they're not supposed to. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of where it's at. And, and it, it, it is, it's, it, again, it's a very political, uh, theme of these, these, these sheriffs are, are, are making in a sense, um, almost signaling to their constituents that we don't, 
want to enforce this. We don't really like this. Um, but again, I think that at the end of the day, this is probably, um, as many have pointed out, that it's it's not for a sheriff to decide what is the law. It's for a judge to decide ultimately, or it's with legislators, and then the judge can have the ultimate decision if it goes to court. And that's what's going to happen in this case. And I see the choice of filing the, the lawsuits on the constitutionality are kind of strategic and that the, a lot of them are downstate in courts that previously ruled against mass mandates, for example. Yes. And and and, and that's a very important point. Uh, just to kind of cut through some of the noise on all of this, uh, everybody kind of knows long, long term, this is going to be decided in federal court. The Second Amendment case, uh, it, uh, the the Rifle State Rifle Association filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of Illinois, whether it's decided there at the appellate level or if it goes to the Supreme Court, that's probably where it's headed. The state level lawsuits from Tom DeVore, uh, State Representative Dan Calkins is going to file one in a few days. Um, those are temporary. I, I won't say temporary, but um, basically it, it, is, it is the easiest way for, for gunners to get relief now because you can find a friendly downstate judge. Uh, that will issue a temporary restraining order, uh, basically freeing plaintiffs of these lawsuits from the uh, requirements of this law. And uh, so you get that in the, on, on, on you know, the short-term end. Uh, obviously, the state Supreme Court is 5-2 in favor of the Democrats. Um, and even, if, even before that, uh, it'll be less favorable terrain once it gets to the appellate level. Um, uh, so, so it might be short-lived victories on the state level, but federal is where it's going to be decided. And that's where it gets really interesting because uh, the Supreme Court decided uh, in the Bruin decision last year in New York, it was a case about uh, 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 concealed carry. Um, but for other Second Amendment cases, it's important because the Supreme Court established a whole new uh, uh, standard for evaluating Second Amendment cases. And we haven't seen an assault weapons ban uh, come before the court since. Um, so it's very possible that Illinois could be that that case, or uh, I think Maryland has one in, in, in an appellate court right now. So we might see in the coming weeks, months, you know, what the new ground is on Second Amendment cases in, in this new uh, era where this, uh, this post-Bruin era uh, of evaluation at the federal court level. I will admit I'm not an expert on weapons. Uh, I have friends of mine, though, that own weapons and swear up and down that some assault weapons are legitimate weapons for self-defense in their home. Uh, and I don't have any reason to doubt them, their, their honesty. They know this better than I do. Do you get a sense, Brendan, that this, I mean, uh, could be muddied in a sense of what is an assault weapon and what isn't, what criteria went into to selecting these 150 weapons? I mean, have you, what's your take on that? Yeah, and I and I will not claim to be to be an expert on on on, on guns or on weapons uh, either. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think if you talk to to, to gun owners, or people that are familiar with guns, they will say that there is gray area as there is with uh, uh, in, in in any any policy area um, that you're going to have some weapons that maybe apply, you know, under some circumstances, but other and don't in others, uh, and and. Uh, that's just going to have to be something I think that we're going to have to see play out. Um, it's possible that they could come back and adjust it, you know, do a trailer bill uh, and, and make some changes uh, based on some of that feedback. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, uh, you know, but I, I will say, though, that uh, the proponents uh, have said that they were very deliberate 
and the weapons they included. Uh, they they did take some a lot of testimony, uh, both behind closed doors, and obviously they had some hearings in December, um, and they got some uh, input on what types of weapons should be included and which ones shouldn't be included. Um, and they did incorporate some of that in the bill, obviously not to the satisfaction of, of, of gun owners. I, I don't think any they were ever going to get a bill that was going to satisfy people that are pro second amendment. But, uh, right. uh, but, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, there'll certainly be some of those cases of, of some weapons, you know, maybe, you know, not applying or, or not, you know, shouldn't apply, the ban shouldn't apply. Um, and we might see some of those changes in the future. I, I guess sometimes with, with, with legislation, you have to let it play out a little bit before you see what the problems are. And then, you know, they come back and they fix it. Like they did with the same as Pelosi said, pass it and see what's inside of it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, right? You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Public Radio in the Quad Cities. This is your host, Robin Johnson. My guest today is Brendan Moore, who's with Lee Enterprises and covers state politics and government, does a very good job of it. Um, and we've been talking about the uh, the assault weapons ban that was passed in Springfield in Ju January, just a couple weeks ago. It's already in the courts. And I've got to follow up. Uh, put your political hat on now, but do you sense that this bill would have been undertaken if if the results in the elections in November would have been different? I mean, the Safety Act, which we'll talk about here in a minute, was a major focus of the Republican uh, um, message to uh, elect a new governor, elect down other statewide candidates, members of Congress, mem members of the legislature. And it really didn't resonate as much as everybody, including I thought. I really thought it would resonate more. Um, do you feel that was a factor in the Democrats deciding to go forward with this? If they would have lost some more legislative seats, would they have been a little more hesitant or not undertaken this? You know, on on, on the gun issue, I, I think they would have done it regardless because I, I they had been working on this, um, you know, in their working groups, and they and they knew they were going to do something. Perhaps it could have been less comprehensive. It, it maybe been a little bit more watered down. I think they would have passed something. I mean, they they had the numbers, um, you know, pretty clearly. Well, back up even after the assault weapons ban or after the July Fourth shooting, uh, there was an assault weapons ban that had been proposed, and I believe like fifty six members, all Democrats, signed on immediately. So like they are already pretty much, pretty much already there, um, you know, in July. And so I, I think that it probably would have happened regardless. Same thing with the the abortion omnibus bill, which I think we might talk about. Um, you know, the nice thing about lame duck session is that, well, the nice thing if you're, if you want to get stuff done is you have a lot of lawmakers that aren't coming back who, you know, are never going to face voters again. And they may be more willing to take politically tough votes uh, just knowing that. And so I think that that probably would have, um, that would have allowed for, for some type of assault, semi-automatic weapons ban um, in, in the abortion legislation in the past. Uh, whereas with the safe, Safety Act, on the other hand, I think that if, if there was one, one, a less favorable result for the Democrats, that might have maybe convinced some Democrats to go a little bit further in some of the changes that they made um, at, in, in the, uh, in the veto session. So, um, I think that it, it probably was the case in some areas, but, but, but not as much in others. 
So that act did go into effect in January, cash bail, the changes in cash bail, which was a major topic of this. Uh, the elimination was is is in force now. Um, and I think you might have just answered my, my, my next question. But so they did make changes, but they probably didn't go to the extent that they might have uh, if the election results were a little different. Yeah, the, the way I would describe it is more than a tweak, but less than an overhaul. So they they. Um, you know, it was less. It was it was more than what Democrats, uh, at least the proponents, said they were going to do. Uh, they uh, the immediate thing that they they needed to to do was uh, determine what to do, uh, clarify what was going to happen to those that were that were in jail on December thirty first. What happens the next day? Um, are they just all let out? As some prosecutors were saying, they would have to do. Uh, so they clarified that and said that you know those are previously detained you know, could stay under the old system or they could apply to be uh, uh, moved over to the new system. And they've had kind of a tiered approach to that. So if you were just a regular, you know, kind of a, a low level offender, uh, you would have a hearing within seven days if you were considered a, a threat to the community, 90 days. Um, so they had this whole tiered approach to that. Uh, they also uh, uh, expanded the uh, detention net um, basically saying that there are, you know, are more crimes that a person can be detained for if they're considered a danger before, you know, it was considered, well, if they're just a, if they're a flight risk, then, um, you know, we can detain them for these charges. Um, but, you know, but now that uh, uh, they can be detained, there's the judge has more discretion to detain them if they're considered dangerous. Um, but uh, obviously, right now, we're kind of in a holding pattern because, of the uh, of the uh, 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 lawsuits um, that that is the lawsuits currently before the Supreme Court, so it's kind of all a little bit moot right now because uh, cash bail is still in effect across the state, uh, and it will be until the Illinois Supreme Court decides uh, uh, the the case um, that's before it right now. Uh, and based on its calendar, it's looking like that's probably not going to happen until spring at the earliest. So I, 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 I would guess maybe may, but like, I, I don't even want to put, don't even want to want to, want to guess that. Um, but the Supreme court it, it will have the final say on that. And a lot of people expect that eventually cash bill will go away. Um, just not as soon as, as proponents of the safety act thought it would. You mentioned the abortion omnibus. Uh, I know uh, th there was some movement on that last year in the in the summer, uh, in the spring session. Uh, what's what's the latest on on that in Illinois? Yeah, so Illinois has firmly established itself as an island for abortion access in the Midwest. Uh, is uh, in the post row era, completely surrounded by states that have either banned it or severely restricted it. Uh, and and uh, the Democrats here, Governor Pritzker, have made that a signature issue uh, of protecting, expanding access. Um, and so, obviously, they've already they've already signed a bunch of bills in the past to do that. The Reproductive Health Act in 2019. Uh, last year, they uh, repealed the uh, Parental Notification Act, uh, so girls under 18 don't have to. Uh, their, their parents don't have to be notified uh, if they were seeking an abortion. Um, so basically they built off of that in this, uh, in this most recent legislation. So 
basically uh, the top line is that it uh, protects out-of-state patients who come to Illinois for abortion care. Uh, you know, the state's not going to comply with any subpoenas from other states seeking to take action against those women uh, who, who came here for, for, for reproductive care. Um, and then it also protects uh, abortion providers in Illinois from uh, uh, litigation from other states. Um, and it also, uh, it, there are some provisions that also expand um, the capacity in Illinois, uh, for instance, allowing uh, uh, certain uh, uh, advanced uh, advanced practice registered nurses, nurses and physicians assistants perform uh, uh, certain kinds of abortions um, to take the burden off doctors. Um, and so it does a lot of different things. It's, it's a co very comprehensive piece of legislation. Um, and it it is kind of done to, uh, again, solidify Illinois as as, you know, this uh, this island in the Midwest on this issue, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's kind of been, you know, again, this is one of those issues that was uh, in a working group with Democrats over the summer, um, just, you know, in wake of the Roe decision, you know, what is the state going to do uh, uh, to, to, you know, ensure access for, for women. And, and that was the result of it uh, might not be the last we see, um, you know, it, it, especially now with expanded supermajorities for the for the Democrats, um, you know, they've talked about maybe doing more this legislative session. Um, Governor Pritzker, even in his um, in his uh, inaugural address, uh, said that he would support a constitutional amendment enshrining abortion access into the state constitution. Um, and that would require a supermajority vote of the legislature and then it would go to the ballot in 2024. Um, so that's a possibility as well. Um, so they might not be done on that. What do you see as the big, uh, I, I mean, the Democrats have done done a lot uh, to enact their, their agenda. Uh, it, it sounds like with, with uh, the abortion, omnibus, the Safety Act, the, uh, uh, the assault weapons ban. What are they looking at uh, this spring as far as maybe the top two or three priorities? Yeah, it's it it is again. It gets gets a little difficult in a way because they 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 have ticked off a lot of things on their list. But uh, in and uh, President Harmon and Speaker Welch haven't spoken a lot yet on on what they want to do. But Governor Pritzker has offered some hints. Uh, again, in his inaugural address, he identified some initiatives that he wants to get done in his second term. Um, talked about uh, universal uh, preschool. Uh, and uh, expanding uh, state tax credits for child care. Um, again, uh, it kind of goes into his theme of uh, lifting up working families, uh, uh, trying to, to help them get ahead. Um, so those things are definitely on the list. Uh, free college for uh, uh, free college for uh, uh, Illinois students going to state schools. Uh, which could be done through expanding the uh, MAP grant program, um, which they have increased funding for over the years. But uh, the governor and, you know, top lawmakers have said all this is contingent on the state continuing to steady the ship, uh, its financial ship, um, making sure that finances are okay. So after some period, a period of instability, I guess you could call it that, under Bogoyevich, Quinn, uh, and then obviously probably the worst period was the budget that passed under Governor Rauner. 
the state has entered a relative period of fiscal stability. It's had some credit rating upgrades. Uh, the budget's been balanced for the past few years. Some of that's been with the help of COVID money um, from the federal government. Also, just the, the people are, were spending a lot more money, and so tax revenue was up. So the state has had surpluses the past few years, um, and that's allowed them to do a lot of these things um, and, and talk about doing even more. Um, but the key is going to be, you know, trying to 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 maintain that fiscal responsibility, um, paying down the pensions because that has not gone away. The the state's pension debt uh, is still as large as it has pretty much ever been. Um, so there are still a lot of things, uh, a lot of trouble ahead in terms of finances. There's still a structural deficit. Um, but at least for the time being, there's a little bit of wiggle room, a little bit of flexibility. And so it'll be interesting to see how lawmakers and the governor navigate that. Uh, the governor is going to, you know, have a budget address here in a few weeks. And it'll be interesting to see how he kind of, you know, puts all those puzzle pieces together and makes it all work. Got time for uh, one more question. Uh, Brendan Moore, the political reporter for Lee. Uh, it, it, we've got a new uh, uh, a, fa- a new face in uh, leadership in Springfield on the Republican side, and she's uh, local and, and known in the Quad Cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, State Representative Tony McCombie, uh is now the House Republican leader. Uh, she's the first woman to lead a caucus in the Illinois House of Representatives. Uh, she takes over for longtime leader Jim Durkin, who stepped down after uh, fairly disappointing uh, election results in November. Uh, so she's uh, relatively new. I mean, she was elected in 2016, uh, defeated a longtime uh, uh, Democrat up in the Quad Cities. Uh, her district has changed a little bit now with redistricting, but she represented a very blue collar district, a lot of union workers. Um, you know, she is uh, conservative, uh, no doubt, uh, probably a little more conservative than Jim Durkin was, you know, him being from the suburbs. But, uh, you know, if you talk to her, she wants to win. And uh, she, you know, I remember uh, she had a media session after she was elected leader by her caucus uh, and said, you know, we, I asked her, you know, how do you plan to help I or one of my colleagues asked her, how do you plan to, to help make the party competitive in the suburbs and win back a bunch of these competitive seats? And she said point blank, well, I was in a competitive race uh, back. I, I ran against an incumbent, you know, back when I first uh, uh, ran. And so I know what that's like to be in a tier one race. I know how to win. Um, so I think that she's going to bring in some youth and some enthusiasm. She's only in her early 40s. I believe so. You know, it, it, it's a new face for the for the Republicans, perhaps. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, she faces a lot of structural disadvantages. Uh, the map that the redistricting map that the Democrats passed in 2021 was a good one for the Democrats. It probably cemented their majorities, probably cemented their super majorities for the next 10 years. And you know, money follows power. Uh, Democrats have a lot of money. Republicans really don't. So she's really going to have to figure that out, how to raise money uh, to run in a lot of these races. Um, but uh, but she, again, you know, it maybe is a, a different voice, different face for the party. And, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps that has uh, has maybe an impact. We'll be following that uh, very closely. Uh, Brendan, thank you so much for being my guest today on Heartland Politics. Brendan Moore 
has been on today. He's the Illinois state government and politics reporter for Lee Enterprises. Again, uh, um, he, he's a he's a great writer and an analyst of Illinois politics. Uh, he's uh, he, he's he's from downstate, but keeps an, quite a good eye on Chicago as well. So again, if you want to follow him, he's on Twitter at Brendan Moore one three thirteen. Brendan, thanks again for being my guest, and I look forward to having you on again sometime. Yeah, anytime, Robin. Thank you. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.